Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC and it's great to have you with us. You're joining us for the second in a five-part series looking at the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It's found just before Daniel and a little bit after uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah immediately follows Lamentations. And we had a little look last time round at some of the context about a kind of person Ezekiel was and his background uh, from a priestly family. And we looked at um, one or two of the, the sort of bits of context about the exile that the people of Judah were uh, beginning at that point. Um, and we're going to carry on looking at the book, but we're going to take on quite a, a wide um, a wide chunk of the text uh, of the book uh, on this occasion. Before we go any further, uh, I'm going to be praying and then the text that we're looking at, we're going to be bo uh, borrowing little bits of text all the way through. Um, so there'll be a, a little chunk that we look at and I'll tell you where it's from. Uh, and then we'll be looking uh, a little bit at what that part of the text is telling us. So it is kind of a brace yourself, strap yourself in kind of occasion this time round. So let's pray before we go any further. Father God, we thank you for the chance to look at texts like these, books like Ezekiel, which aren't easy to get our heads around. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will be really present with us as we explore uh, these, these chapters and what they might say to us. We pray that you would give us patience and a willingness to accept new ideas or to have old ones challenged. And we ask that you would be gracious to us uh, throughout our time together. Amen. Okay, I'm going to dive right in. We're going to go from Ezekiel 2 to Ezekiel 11. We're not going to read all of the chapters. Uh, we're going to dip into some bits of them. Um, and I'm going to ask you really to, to stay focused as best you can. And I'm going to try and help by making sure that each section isn't too long. Okay. We're beginning with Ezekiel 3, and we're just reading verses 10 to 15. He said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord's Lord rose from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The spirit then lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River and there where they were living I sat among them for seven days deeply distressed. Let's have a little book, a little look at what this bit of the text is saying to us. Now we, in our first part we looked mostly at chapter one and we saw how uh, Ezekiel first encounters God and he, he does this um, in his 30th year, so he's about 30 years old, he's from a priestly family and this is the age at which a priest will start serving in the temple but Ezekiel's not in the temple, he's far away in Babylonia. Indeed, it tells us here that he um, 
was at a place called Tel Aviv, which is near the Kabar River, which is an irrigation canal in Babylonia. Um, and the city of Tel Aviv that's in, in modern day Israel is named after this place uh, where exiles were gathered together uh, at this point in the history of Israel. So the, the really think the couple of things that I want to pick up from this. Uh, well, the main thing is that God gives a message to Ezekiel. He says, go to your people in exile, speak to them and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. So there's there's going to be a message that's going to be difficult for Ezekiel to pass on, but he's got to pass it on anyway. And God's already warning him that there's a chance that the people won't hear it. Now, what we don't have from those few verses that we've read is a little bit uh, from kind of towards the end of chapter two and the very beginning of chapter three, where God gives uh, a message, gives a scroll. This is in a vision, gives a scroll to Ezekiel and, and asks him to eat it. The scroll is has writing on both sides, suggesting that it's packed with information. And it's a scroll of lament and woe. So Ezekiel knows he's got bad news to give. He knows there's a good chance that the people won't want to hear it because God's warned him of these things. Um, he tastes, he eats the scroll as instructed in his vision, and it tastes um, honey sweet, which I think is is a way of God sort of representing to us that it is um, a safe, good message, good insofar as it comes from God, even though it's got um, lament and woe and bad news in it. And so Ezekiel comes away kind of overwhelmed by um, a sense of of woe himself, of distress. It says, uh, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. So Ezekiel is overwhelmed by the message that he's been asked to give. Next, we come to a passage from chapter four. It's a little longer this time. Um, I've subtitled this Ezekiel Goes to Ground, and it's a little bit weird in its way. Now, son of man, says God, take a block of clay, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. And then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you then the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you finish this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and set it 
at set and eat it at set times. Also, measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people, using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Now, you may feel this is standard biblical language. I tend to think it's a little bit weird. We have here an instruction from God that Ezekiel should reenact the siege of a city. He should do so by making a model of the city, the city of Jerusalem, and then by he himself acting as the besieging army of it by lying on his left side for just over a year, well, a year and a bit. This is not normal behaviour, even for prophets. We've talked before about how Ezekiel's prophecy is bigger and uh, more sort of vivid than perhaps some or a lot of other prophets have been. And this is part of an example of that. He's got to draw the city, build a siege model and then put this iron pan in place. The iron pan represents the, the inability of Jerusalem to be heard by its besiegers. Now, what's interesting here is that Ezekiel is representing two things. One, he's representing God's inability or decision, if you like, not to listen. He's also representing a genuine military siege which will take place by the Babylonians against Jerusalem. Lionel left for a year. Well, we've got to be a little bit careful about how we think about this. The reality is if you stay still lying on your left hand side for 390 days, you actually die. It's... Um, it's a result of things like pressure sores and, and the imbalance of your body's position uh, means that it's, it's a very dangerous thing to do. It may be that uh, Ezekiel put himself in this position for a certain amount of time each day. Um, we certainly got to think about how he goes about eating his meals, which are small. And by the way, this is significant too. But what we're talking about there is pretty much siege rations. So his food represents the people of uh, Jerusalem not having a full um, uh, a full eating pattern, a full diet, if you like, uh, while they're under siege. And then you get this weird bit about baking, um, baking things using human excrement for fuel. Actually, a few verses later, God goes back on this and says, you can use cow dung, it's okay. Um, but the, the, the emphasis there is on the people of Judah who are in exile, um, having to eat defiled food or, or non-holy food because they are in a foreign land. So there's lots of illustrative stuff all being packed in together here. We've got the eating of siege rations, the eating of, of defiled food. We've got a, uh, an explanation of siege. And importantly, this does one other significant job. You can imagine that Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, who is kind of a, a contemporary, there are age is a bit different but they did prophesy at the same time in different places that um, Ezekiel could have stood in front of the people in Tel Aviv on the uh, banks of the Kabar River and declared his word from the Lord could have announced his message and he may well have been ignored Jeremiah was routinely ignored in fact Ezekiel was often ignored too but by doing this incredible bit of drama with the siege and the lying on the side stuff, you get the impression of a, of a community that would have started going, well, we know he claims to be a prophet, 
and we know we don't like necessarily what he has to say, but I kind of want to understand what's going on because he keeps being seen in the community lying on his side. So by the time he actually gets to talk through what he wants to pass on from God, he's got an audience, not because he's speaking with great um, great flourishes and clever use of language, but because he's done something that makes him look weird. It's like the difference between um, maybe signing a petition and actually turning out uh, on a protest march. It's, it's much more visual and much more um, engaging. So we've got, we've got the first passage, which is the Ezekiel feeling overwhelmed. Now we've got Ezekiel goes to ground, which is a crazy illustration. And next, we're going to look at another passage. I call this one Ezekiel the sword shaver. And we're jumping in to the beginning of chapter five here. Now, son of man, says God, talking to Ezekiel, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. This is um, more hard going for Ezekiel. He spent more than a year lying on his side, uh, on his left and then his right, illustrating a point and then speaking to the people um, who are in exile around him. We get the impression that throughout that time he's not had a shave. Whether or not he's had a wash is another question. It may be that he doesn't just look odd, but he might smell bad too. Anyway, God then says, I want you to have a shave, but he doesn't say use a razor. He says use a sharp sword. Now, the, even the sharpest sword is going to be hard to shave with. It's going to be um, hard on the skin. It's going to cut, but cut less smoothly than a razor might. So you can imagine once he's finished shaving not just his face, but his head as well with a sword, however sharp it might be, he's going to be hurting and his face and head are going to look a mess. This is part of how God is getting his point across to the people of Judah. Once, once these awful things that God is telling are, are coming, once they've happened, there'll be a real sense of pain through what the people of Judah have gone through. And then we get this thing with the, the, um, with the burning or, 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 hit or um, striking of hair uh, that's, you know, in those three sections, divide the hair into three, uh, what does it say? When the days of going to burn a third of the hair inside the city. So that, that's an indication of what happens to those living in the city. Um, take a third and strike it with a sword all around the city. So that's, that gives the impression of those who are part of the people of Judah, but who aren't in the city and who are destroyed too. 
Take a few hairs and tuck them away in a fold of your garment. That's the, the exile people. And again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. I don't know about you, but my experience um, of, of what burning hair is like is fairly limited, but, but I think it's a fairly smelly process. It's not, it's got a sort of a, a, a tangy kind of smell that is, is fairly unpleasant. So the whole of this experience that the shaving and the burning of hair is, isn't nice. And all of it is supposed to get a message across to the people of Judah in exile about what's coming for Jerusalem and for the people of Judah. OK, this is uh, the next section we're looking at, chapter eight here. Uh, and I've, I've subtitled this Flyby Vision. And it's really a story of, of a journey to Jerusalem that Ezekiel takes. But by way of vision, it's kind of it's kind of 3D IMAX type stuff. Um, so we've got to bear in mind that what's described is part of the vision. It's part of the vision that's given while Ezekiel is with some of the elders. Let me read it. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. Note this is pretty much a year after the events of Ezekiel chapter one. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Now, Ezekiel has referenced here a couple of things from chapter one to remind the audience that it's he is confident this is God speaking. Then he said to me, son of man, look toward the north. So I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and the idols, all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and Jazaniah, son of Shephan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. A censer is a, a, um, a little bowl in which incense is burned. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. 
The sovereign lord said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. And although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. It's tough reading, I think, for us. Tough to, to see how God works here and the way he, he's feeling and the way he describes what Ezekiel is seeing. I wanted to pick up on four things very quickly. One is this idol. It's hard for us to know exactly what's being referred to here, but there is, uh, in the early part uh, of that chapter, a reference to this uh, idol of jealousy. Whatever it is, it's not God, and it has been given a place in the temple. Then we see these priests and statues. Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They are using the, the space of the temple as a place to worship many different idols, created things, not the creator. And then we have uh, in verse 14, women mourning the god Tammuz. Now it was normal for women uh, to mourn the god Tammuz. He was believed to die at the point in the year when plants started wilting and he was revived and became active again at the point when the rains came and so the crops renewed. So it's part of fertility worship and fertility of the land to, to worship the god Tammuz and to mourn his death at a particular point in the year. That's at the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And then finally, you've got these men who are turning their back uh, on the temple of the Lord and worshipping the sun instead. It is not surprising, having seen all these things, um, having, you know, with God, having seen these things happen, having shown them to Ezekiel, then says, is this a trivial thing? Does it, does it not matter? Is it, am I supposed to not mind if detestable things are happening and then there's this weird bit about putting the branch to their nose scholars are a little bit unsure about this um, some of them think that putting the branch to your nose is another um, uh, nature worship uh, activity but there are others who think that to um, to do this uh, branch to the nose thing is a little bit like um, sticking two fingers up you know flicking the v's or, or giving the finger uh, whatever particular language you want to use for that an insulting action when pointed at somebody else and in a way that seems to make more sense to me this is this is God recognizing that the idolatry that's happening that the focus on things that aren't God in the in the the temple among the people of Judah is a deliberate insult it's showing a deliberate lack of respect not just being um, idly unaware of the respect that might be given but really quite deliberate in disrespect. We've been going for a little while now uh, I want to have a look at chapters 9, 10 and 11. I want to do a little bit from each one and I want to do them fairly briefly. So from chapter 9 starting at verse 3 uh, I've called this um, a matter of life and death. 
The glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. And then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side. This guy's been referred to previously uh, in a bit that we haven't read. And said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. That's more, from my point of view, more really difficult reading for us who know God to be a God of love. But also perhaps need to be reminded that God is passionate and powerful and has a rightful place in and among his creation and particularly with those he has chosen. I'm going to move on uh, to chapter 10 in a moment, but I do just want to remind us that that there is a, a parallel there um, as, as with the exodus. So at that point, there is a mark on the doorposts um, where the people of God are. And death doesn't come to those, but does come to anyone who hasn't recognised God's presence and accepted his protection. This short passage from chapter 10, uh, this is, I've called this no van removals. And um, we're starting at verse 15 of chapter 10. Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the living creatures I had seen by the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the cherubim spread their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels did not leave their side. When the cherubim stood still, they also stood still. And when the cherubim rose, they rose with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. I think in some ways this would have been one of the most striking bits for the original audience that Ezekiel was speaking to. This is part of the same vision from chapter 8 and, and Ezekiel sat down with the elders um, sort of in front of him and, and he's then explaining everything that he's seeing and he's describing how God is leaving the temple, stepping away. I think the idea of God moving out and no longer being where you utterly believe that he is going to be based is, well, heart-wrenching and possibly also felt like heresy. It may well be the elders didn't want to hear it because they felt it would be theologically impossible for God to move away. And yet this is the message God is giving through Ezekiel. It's worth noting that at some point in the story of the book of Ezekiel, after it's been given, um, the Jewish people go through a process of identifying whether a written thing should be part of, um, of scripture. And they took a long time over deciding whether or not to include Ezekiel uh, in the canon of scripture and they decided that they would. But it was hard going and there were definitely some Jewish scholars who had a key role to play in helping the people understand why this was God's voice. The last passage I want to read is from chapter 11, and I'm reading from verse 14. 
the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. I think there's a strong message in that passage that says only a radical changing of heart will do. God tells Ezekiel at the, uh, way back in, in chapter 2, You've got a tough message to pass on. And this tough message has been given. But ultimately, the sovereign Lord says, if people don't want me, if they want to put their faith in something else, I'm going to let that play out. I'll, I'll let them have the consequences of their own choices. I want to bring this to a conclusion. First of all, I want to say that God takes idolatry really seriously. And now idolatry is the worship of anything that's an idol, anything that isn't God. Perhaps the, the way I find most helpful in terms of how the Bible describes idolatry is the idea of worshipping the things that are created rather than the creator. When you think about all the different ways in which um, the people of Israel get distracted in, in these chapters. It is that they turn their attention to things that aren't the creator. And anything that isn't the creator is something created. The thing is that God takes faithfulness really seriously. Perhaps that's because he's really faithful himself. Perhaps it's because he believes that that's the right way for communities to work. It is, after all, an, a key expression of love to be faithful. And God himself is love. I think it's also because relationships really matter to him. So God intended relationship when he created humanity. The whole idea was that God would share his presence with his people. And so when that connection is lost, when that faithfulness goes wonky, that intended relationship is broken. All good things are a gift from God. And so anything that isn't from God is going to be less good or not good at all. And idolatry, therefore, is painful and immoral and hurtful and careless and, and heartless and reckless as well and horribly insensitive 
to have somebody in your life who has promised to love you and to enter into a relationship with them where you've said you'll be faithful to them and they've said they'll be faithful to you. To then take the place of the other person and, and fill it with something else, that's unreal. It, it's, it is inviting someone else to come in and take the place of a loved one. It's, it's like kicking a brother out and saying, I, I want to have this person off the street who I'd rather have as my brother instead. It's, it's someone coming home and, and finding that their, their husband or wife has invited someone else in to take their place and they're no longer welcome. The driver behind all these chapters is this message from God that the people that he chose are choosing something else. They've been unfaithful. They've said, no, we, we want something different. And they seem blasé or, or, you know, unaware or, or heedless or not caring about the impact of that choice. Next time we look at Ezekiel, we'll be looking at a particularly tricky chapter tricky because of the way in which God describes the problem that exists between him and his people and a lot of that the way that's described is to do with describing how relationships work and how they can go wrong and the behavior of somebody who is unfaithful and it's going to be tough next time round. but for now I, I just want to look back again at, at those chapters and say a lot of time for Ezekiel. He has a tough job presenting this stuff to a people who don't want to know and don't want to hear it and struggle to accept it. But I also want us to take something else away. God is love. And love is faithfulness. And what we have here is, is a description of a system, a, a kind of institutionalised lack of faithfulness. And I wonder whether it does us some good to put ourselves in God's shoes and ask how he must have felt for 300 and something, 390 years to see his people steadily, consistently reject him. I'm not sure that I've got the words to explain how I might respond in God's place. And I think it's a struggle, too, to think how we might respond to chapters like these. But I am minded to remember that in 1 John, the writer in the New Testament, 1 John, talks about um, how there's no place for fear with love because fear is to do with punishment. It would be easy for us to read Ezekiel and think, well, this has nothing to do with me because I don't behave like this. And it would also be easy for us to say um, this doesn't feel real because it's not the way I think God works. It, we could also end up carrying a whole load of, of fear and, and guilt and worry that maybe God sees us like this. And in the middle of all three of those possibilities, there is Jesus who stands as our advocate, representing us in our faithlessness to a God who loves us, expressing to us the love that God has for us and his desire not to send us away. Jesus, who is, whose role is to help us renew that connection and repair and restore that connection 
with the God who always intended to share his presence with us. Let's pray. Lord, we take seriously how serious you are about faithfulness. Help us recognise the idolatry that creeps into our lives, the ways in which we put other things at the heart of who we are, the way in which we let things shape our identity that aren't you. We ask that you would be gracious to us and forgive us. We ask that you help us to realise what it feels like for you when your people are unfaithful. And we thank you for Ezekiel, who heard your words and saw your visions and shared them with your people. Amen. Okay, so we're asking three questions as normal from what we've looked at today. There are lots of things we could ask. Well, I'm just going to go for three. The first one, and I'm going from um, Ezekiel 4 here and that crazy uh, demonstration of the siege. Um, so the question I want to ask is, what is the iron pan in your life? So this iron pan that separates the people of God from God himself, so he can't hear them. What are the things that stop you from communicating with God? I don't want to, I don't want to think about whether or not God might ever choose not to hear us. I think, I think what we have in the Holy Spirit suggests that that's not something for us to worry about. Um, but I do think we need to be aware of what the things are that act as blockages when we might be communicating with God, but perhaps we aren't. OK, question two, and I'm going into chapter eight for this question. In chapter eight, all kinds of idols are seen as holding people's attention and turning them away from God. It does us good to be honest in recognising that we do things and make choices which take us away from God, which distract us or hold our attention when otherwise God might call for our attention. It is those things that are sin, the things that, that draw us away from our focus being on God. So I want to ask what your idols are. Please don't be um, fearful of owning up to these. God knows they are there. Only your pride will stop you being honest about them. And the chances are there's more than one. It'll be the things that uh, that mean that perhaps um, you don't pray as much as you think you probably would like to, or the things that your mind turns to readily um, um, when you're trying to pray, or the things that mean that you maybe don't sit down with your Bible like you might do, or the things that mean that you're not serving in the way that you'd intended, all kinds of possibilities. What are the idols? What are the things that get your attention more than God does? And question three comes from chapter 11. There's this uh, image that we're given by Ezekiel of how uh, the sovereign law says he will remove hearts of stone and instead give hearts of flesh. And perhaps for us, with our modern understanding of heart transplants, that perhaps makes a bit more sense to us than maybe it would have done at the time to the people that Ezekiel was speaking to. If God is going to remove from you your hard heart and give you a softened heart that is more receptive to him, then 
you need this kind of open heart surgery. And so the question is, what can you do to prepare yourself for open heart surgery, spiritually speaking? I don't want anybody um, wiping their chest down with um, that funny coloured stuff that people have um, put on their skin before surgery. No, no weird um, self-administered local anaesthetic or anything bonkers like that. This is a spiritual question. If we recognise that we need something of our heart to change, to be transformed, how can we get ourselves ready to do that? How can we invite God to do that? What might need to change for us to allow God to do that in our lives? This has been, I think, a very rapid look at lots of chapters. And thank you for staying with us, for staying with me as we've looked at these things. Thank you for your patience and for your concentration. I do hope if you just watch this through all at one go, and there are bits that you realise that you can't quite remember, that you will have the chance to go back and look at some of them again. And I do hope too that you have the opportunity to share some discussion with other disciples about how you might answer those questions too. For now, as we finish, let's pray. Lord Holy Spirit, we know that you spoke through your prophets and you had hard messages to pass on. Would you give us a receptive uh, spirit that we might hear when you have hard messages for us too? And would we be ready to be challenged by you in whatever issues we face to do with faithfulness to you and our idolatry? As you taught your disciples to pray, Deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Take care and God bless and we'll see you soon.